This episode was produced in partnership with the upcoming podcast, The Dark Domain. Some believe uncertainty is an evil that should be dispelled through divination. Others claim it's change that is evil. But that isn't true either. Every minute of every day, we each become someone new. We shouldn't fear change itself, but only who we might change into. Knowing one's path is most important. The Fool. What a surprise. Let's dig deeper to find its meaning here. Interestingly enough, I found that was the most accurate representation in tarot was in cyberpunk. They really did their research with that. And even Misty's way of explaining the cards, it was it was very beautiful to me as someone who's been reading the cards for 10 years and studying it for even longer. Welcome to the Dark Domain. What if I told you I could read your life story? Your past, your present, and maybe even your future. And I could do it with a deck of cards. Not your standard deck of 52 poker cards, mind you, but a deck of 78 tarot cards. Tarot is a deck of cards, 78 cards, and they are fixed cards, meaning that they have associations that are fixed and put on them. Um, so every card is the same no matter what deck you use. This is Mystic Dylan. He's a tarot reader and the owner of the Old World Emporium, a witchcraft shop located in Newhall, California. He has been around tarot all his life and has been practicing professionally for 14 years. So far, he has collected 172 decks, is writing a book about tarot, and is also designing his own deck. Can you tell me more about the different aspects of the deck? Like you have the pips uh, mm -hmm. with, with those their four suits, and then you have the major arcana that we recognize today. Right. Essentially every suit known as the pips or the minor arcana, good for you, is associated with either characteristics or things having to do with our day-to-day -day life. I, they're more of the mundane. That's what helps really flesh out the story. So you have wands, which are associated with communication, other people, conflicts with other people. It's ruled by the element of fire, okay? You have swords, which is conflict. Um, and that's usually associated with the element of air. You have cups, which rules water, um, and emotions, relationships, relationships with people, relationships with money, our personal relationships, our dynamics. Uh, and then you have the pentacles or coins, um, so that is the physical and financial. Then within those suits, there are um, determinative cards. So those are the court cards. So king, 
queen, page, and knight. And then you have the major arcana, the first 22 cards of the deck, which some people call the book of life or the spiritual aspect of the tarot. Um, so when you use all those cards, when you use a full 78 card deck, that is what's going to flesh out your story. Or that is what those dynamics are going to help answer that question. As you said earlier, every single card, no matter what deck you're using, has an assigned meaning to it already, right? Correct. And that is because tarot is a fixed system. Let's use the Three of Swords, right? So if I pull the Three of Swords, here it is, for you, right? The Three of Swords means disappointment, heartbreak, betrayal. That's what it means. Whether it be in the Rider-Waite-Smith or whether it be in Marseille. Any skilled tarot card reader or tarot card reader that knows tarot should tell you that this is disappointment, betrayal, heartbreak, or there are going to be obstacles. However, and this is where things get complicated, you really don't know as a person what it means. So for all you know, I could tell you the Three of Swords is the yes card. You're going to get the love of your life. Everything's going to be okay. You can't really do that because it's a fixed card. So when people apply their own meanings to cards, they might as well use an oracle deck. So if you're like, what's an oracle deck? An oracle deck is just a, a random deck made by an artist that is meant to help instill or pull out your intuitive you know, feelings or forces. So, like, for example, like, my I've only had a tarot reading done on me once. My friend sent me a Christmas card, and she pulled for me six of coins. Like, what, what does the six of coins, in your understanding, mean? The six of coins, as a person, can indicate someone who is very much about reciprocal energy. This is Jenna, who you heard at the top of the episode. She has been a tarot reader for ten years, owns 64 decks, and runs her own business, Bell, Book, and Tarot, through Instagram. You give and you receive. You work very evenly with people. You have the possibility of being a people pleaser because you want to keep those scales balanced. It's all about giving and taking and this constant flux and change of different understandings and learning. If we see it as a situation, it could be that you were in a very bad situation and now with positive forward movement and investing into yourself or whatever goals you want to achieve, you're seeing that positive momentum happening. On the flip side, if you are not putting in those steps and that work to it, you're going to see those scales slowly tipping to the decrease. As a point of comparison, here is how my friend B, who originally drew the card for me, interpreted the six of coins. Often referred to as the charity card, this card brings financial assistance, scholarships, tax rebates, or even an ear when you're feeling down. Perhaps someone will come by with a surprise, bringing with them an item you need, or assistance that's been waited for. Keep an eye out. Your lucky day is coming. No two people are going to read the cards the same, and that's the beauty of tarot. It's it's all of your intuition and your interpretation. Someone's going to see the six of coins one way, another person's going to see it something different. So how do tarot readings work? Is there like a 
a standard way to do a tarot reading or does each person who's doing a reading have their own like technique style or way of doing it first of all it's a very very big source of intimate trust between the reader and the person receiving the reading so you have to put your own issues aside you have to detach from your own insecurities your own doubts because you are essentially holding someone's spirit in your hands and trying to guide them to something what is it like having people like you said kind of put themselves out and like bear themselves for you Mm -hmm. so openly with your readings it's a lot it's it's I love it in my environment. I love it when it's in my shop. I love it when there's time. When I go to a fair where readings are supposed to be five, ten minutes, and someone comes to me and they're like, I just broke up with my ex. I'm crying. I'm living out of my car. Blah, 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 blah. Help me with life. It, it gets nerve-wracking because ten minutes is not going to help you. You know, you can't get all the answers to life. Um, but it's also very humbling because... People are so vulnerable and they trust that the cards or, or I'm going to help them. Uh, that's the other thing, too, as a tarot reader. You have to be objective. You cannot be biased. So if you were to ask about a girl that you liked and I saw that three of swords, I would be obligated to say it's not going to go well. You may be disappointed. What happens is a lot of readers don't want to upset their clients. So they will say, it's going to be fine. (laughs) So you can't be disingenuous. You have to be authentic and you have to live by the cards. I don't really do any concrete spreads. There's a lot of people who only do the Celtic Cross. There's people who only do past, present, future. It's very much a personal and very personalized way of reading with how times have changed and people have been discovering their own voice and their own way of speaking and interpreting the cards it has become something a lot more fluid than we have seen in the past as jenna mentioned tarot reading is often a very personal and personalized experience some of this may stem from the belief that individual decks have their own personalities which can influence the tone of a reading. I can kind of relate it to people who feel like that way about, let's say, their, their D&D dice. Like, once the, the dice kills off their character, it's like, okay, oh, you're a bad set of dice now, I'm not going to use you. So I have a more animist um, kind of perspective on it, and an animist is someone who sees a spirit or, you know, soul in everything. Crystals, trees, mm-hmm. rocks, my terrible. All of my tarot decks have names. They all have different personalities. But, you know, I have some decks that their personalities are very sassy. And I have clients who are like, you know, I need a pick-me-up pep talk. I'm like, okay, I know I can go to the sassy deck instead of the one that's always, always given me a more serious approach to things. I've been doing this long enough just, you know, for people I know very closely or now clients that I'm taking I can kind of gauge based on the reading what deck they have to use or what deck they will be introduced to and we go from there and the readings are always successful. Sometimes I'll get home from work and just have a running conversation with my cards. I don't want to bog down somebody else with, you know, what Mm. I'm thinking or what I'm thinking. So I go to my cards, I set up a space for myself and I just let it go. If I want to be gentle, (laughs) I use my Greece Roman deck when I read with it, it always seems to come off 
it's a slight nudge, it feels like, like more of a suggestion. Whereas when I read with my soft deck, it's like, girl, stop it, knock it off, go on. Like, so it's a different, personally, when I read with them, they're different vibes. This is Jessica. She is a co-founder of the witchcraft-based home goods brand, Three Crows Crossroads, and she also works at the Old World Emporium. She has done readings for 20 years, though mostly privately for herself, friends, and family, and owns 20 decks. A lot of times you'll interview your deck. You'll ask it questions and see what it answers you when you pull cards on it to get a feel for that deck's vibe. Where does the trust of what the cards are saying come in? Because like if you, for example, like if you have a a card reading that's utterly awful and you just, a lot of people don't like hearing bad information or they'll say, oh, I want to, I want to read another reading or I want a second opinion or I don't trust that. Like where, where does that aspect of a reading come into play? That's a lot on the person being read is to have the openness to understand. Like I, I keep referring to it as therapy and going back to that analogy because it's what resonates the best for me. Because if you go into your therapist and you tell them I had these things happen, they're going to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Shuffle the cards. We will see if you and Roger are destined to be together. This is the man of your future. But he doesn't look like Roger. It is not Roger. There will be one romance. And it shall last forever. Romance? What about money? This man will enter your life. Most often, when people come to a tarot reading, they come seeking advice about love or their careers or money. Sometimes the readings are positive. Other times, they are not. The common expectation of tarot readers seems to be that, through the use of their cards, they are able to access some mystical window into an inevitable future. This is not the case, and according to Jessica, personal accountability is still a major factor. I don't believe in a straight line fate. I believe that we're ultimately here for a reason, but depending on the choices I make and the roads I take is where my outcome's gonna come. So if we do this reading for love and I tell you these are the things you need to do and this is what I see coming out from it, but you don't follow what's being told, don't expect to end up where where I thought you would be because you didn't follow the lines to get to that ending. You made a different choice, so you ended up over here. If you come in and want to know what the next six months are like, and I say, um, I see a job promotion, and then you go home and drink yourself into a slurry to celebrate, and then you're late for work, and then you don't get that job promotion, that's not the cards. That's your choice. Do I think the cards are accurate? Absolutely. I've been doing this too long to not think it. But I also think that a lot of people are afraid of delving deeper and they don't take a responsibility because the cards don't make the fate. You do. I can't tell you how many people will fight me on a reading and then we'll come back six months later and be like, oh my God, Dylan, you were right. I'm like, yeah, bitch, I'm a witch. (laughs) While tarot holds an air of mysticism, and is considered a form of divination. Not all those who practice it necessarily consider it to be fortune-telling. 
Jenna again. That's just how it's been portrayed for so long, is that if you read tarot cards, you can read somebody's fortune and, you know, their future events. Sometimes it can happen, but it's very, very rare, you know, that a tarot reader is going to be able to pinpoint exactly where you're going to be in the next 20 years. There's so much that can happen just in the next 10 minutes where personal freedom comes in and your own force of will that's going to affect anything. There's, you know, a lot of power in forearmed is forewarned. It's not for fortune telling. The way I use tarot is for confirmation. A good tarot reading, it's going to, it's not going to change from what you already know. Most people go to tarot not knowing that they're simply looking for confirmation with what's already going on. I am simply reading the cards. That's all I'm doing. I'm not reaching into your subconscious. I'm not reading into your energetic field. I'm simply reading what is in front of me. You know, nine times out of ten, it's going to be up to you anyway. I can't give you all the information in the world. It's still, you have free will. You can do whatever you want. You're just coming to me for either confirmation or validation. Would you like now, this sounds a bit like a plot from A Midsummer Murder, actually, but it is a true story. A clairvoyant Jane Braden, she drew the devil card during one of her readings, but even she couldn't have foreseen what was about to happen. I dealt ten cards, and I could see that there was problems. By the time we got to the devil card, he broke down in tears and confessed to me that he'd murdered someone. The last four cards was justice, the judge, and prison. And that's, did you turn those codes after he'd said, I've murdered somebody? No, they were all there in front of me, but I was looking at the whole lot. Did you think he came that day to confess whatever yes. those cards yeah, had been? absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. He needed somebody to go to, to be somebody in the middle, yeah. to, to get him to the police. I think he'd been to a police station once and it was closed. <laughs> yeah. And so I, did, I don't think he knew anywhere else to go. Well, amazing story, Jane. I think there are a lot of skeptics. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about tarot that I'm surprised still live on today. They want me to pull a card and say, I see this man, his name's James, and he's going to be coming in the next three months in a black car, and he's going to sweep you off your feet and take you to dinner and look out for a green hall, and there's going to be a salad bar. It's so like, specific. Uh, right. Like, there's no salad bar card. Every day, I'll get someone like, um, I have a question. I was like, cool, let's read on your question. And they'll be like, okay. And they'll close their eyes. They're waiting for me to read on their question. I'll say, what's your question? And they're like, why do I need to say it? And I'll say, because I read cards, not minds. The art and practice of reading tarot cards may not be as ancient as divining fate from the stars or reading tea leaves, but it certainly isn't new. Tarot cards themselves date back to Italy in the 1430s and were originally used in a parlor game called Taroki, meaning Wayfarer. You have this game that started in, in kind of like the 15th century. Really, that's when playing cards started. And there is history of it in the 15th, 16th century being used for fortune telling, but more playing cards, not necessarily tarot. Playing cards and gambling was made illegal by the church. 
So you had these underground gambling things going on. You had underground games. Uh, then once you get to the 17th century, they started making them a little funner. So they expanded the cards from 32 to 52. Now you have 78. The first 22 cards of a tarot deck, what we would call the Major Arcana, uh, they were actually supposed to a lot of rich families. It was depictions of friends and family and their status. So it wasn't what we know today, the hermit and the emperor. It really was just like the family crest kind of put out throughout these cards. So like um, a vanity project. Precisely. And, and you'll see that like uh, there's something called the Visconti Tarot. It's one of the most well-preserved tarot decks that we know historically. And it belonged to the Visconti family. The Visconti were a noble family who ruled Milan for nearly 200 years, from 1277 to 1447. Why would this family want to commission a deck if it was for luxury's sake? And like any form of art, it was both beautiful but also a status symbol. This all added up to the prestige. The first 22 cards are the family members. So it's the mother, it's the father, it's the daughter, it's the son, it's the uncle, it's the gardener, you know, things like that. What if they didn't have 22 people to put on the cards? Precisely. That's where it becomes, that's where the occult mysticism come in. So they didn't have 22 people to put on the cards. You would put astrological signs. Um, so say that the mother was a Virgo, you would have the Virgo sign. You would fill in the astrological signs. You would have the Pope, the priest, a local whatever, they would be represented. Women play an equal role in the appearance of figures on the cards. This is the earliest depiction of the female Pope in tarot history. Over the years, Taroki traveled around Europe and eventually arrived in France, which became a hub for mysticism in the 1800s. Modern mysticism in the Roman Catholic Church arose in the first half of the 17th century. It was a reaction against the strong military policy which prevailed. It represented a large number of devout Roman Catholics who saw in the outward strifes a disturbance of the religious life. French mystics, known for their seances and spiritualism, took to using cards to help aid in their divinatory practices. It is during this time that the major arcana were added to the decks, giving us the standard 78 cards we know today. Paris is, it becomes the epicenter of the supernatural, you know. You have so many different people that, you know, Freemasonry. Lots of seances. Becomes lots of seances. Um, and it's a height of spiritualism. Um, and then you have people that, that were interested in the occult. So it, it is in France where you see the occult associations, and then you go to the UK and Brit in Britain, so uh, Rider Waite. You have these two people that are knowing, um, you know, these different occultists, so they kind of create their own theme. But the first deck that I would say that is used for fortune-telling, or that we know today, is the, the Rider Waite-Smith uh, tarot deck. Two men and a woman, um, they essentially create this occult-themed fortune-telling deck. The Rider-Waite-Smith deck, also known as the Rider-Waite deck, was created by Arthur Edward Waite, illustrated by Pamela Coleman-Smith, 
and first published in England in 1909 by William Ryder and Son. In contrast with the more traditional Italian and French Marseille deck, which featured more direct imagery, the Ryder Waite Smith cards are known for being the first to introduce thematic illustrations to tarot, and with those illustrations, occult themes as well as reversals. It's a great beginner deck because it's what the original was, so it really helps you learn that basic concept. The Rider Waite Smith was supposed to help pull out your psychic skills. So here is a, a Rider Waite style deck, and it's this sad, depressed person. You are supposed to look at that, and you're supposed to be like, oh my god, Three of Swords, depression. But now I invoke it, and I see it, and, and I'm going to let my imagination kind of go. So if you look at the Marseille, look at that, it's just Three Swords. It doesn't invoke anything. It is just a heart with Three Swords plunged into it, but it's still illustrated enough that you can see heartbreak. Right. So the difference really would be is that the Rider Waite Smith is there to kind of help you get a meaning for the card instead of just memorizing the keywords. Some people need to see it. Some people won't believe me. They won't believe that the Three of Swords is heartbreak. So I have to show them the card that shows a bloody heart being penetrated by Three Swords. So if, if a card is flipped over or upside down, it is given a different meaning. Considering that the tarot deck that we know today is based off of the Marseille, a, a French fortune-telling deck, um, pips back in the day did not have an up or down. Think, think of a playing card. You can't really reverse a playing card. So I don't read reversals. Um, and traditionally... Tarot did not have reversals. It is is very much specific to the Rider Waite Smith. How does a reader decide whether or not they want to read reversals or not? And how does the decision to read a reversal or not read a reversal affect the reading? I would say it's your practice. The majority of people who read tarot today probably will use reversals because they were taught by the Rider Waite Smith system, or there's something called the little white booklet that comes with the tarot deck. They will give you the reversal. Um, but a lot of traditional tarot readers don't. Um, so someone was like, well, how do you apply negative to that? Or what would be the reversal? I would say it's a spread. So I would say, this is your current situation. This is the next step. And here is an obstacle, okay? So that obstacle, I'm not reading it reversed, but I would just apply the negative to the positive. So let's see, so here's a reversal, the Wheel of Fortune, okay? So instead of saying luck is coming your way, because it's in the placement of obstacle, I would say you may have obstacles obtaining luck. As the first mass-produced deck, the Rider Waite Smith made the art of tarot reading accessible to the masses. While the practice and popularity of tarot grew, there were those who sought to keep the community small. It is these practitioners seeking exclusivity that birthed the alleged rule that you must be gifted your first tarot deck. Here's Jessica. 
it's a rule that was made up to kind of keep tarot small because if you have to be gifted a card, when are you ever going to get a gifted a card? It's not true. Anybody can buy their deck. Who's better to buy a deck than yourself? Cause you're trying to find a deck that feels right for you. So I, I get that a lot. Everybody's like, Oh, I can't get a deck. I love this deck, but nobody's gifted me my first one. It's a misconception. Well, you don't have to follow that. <laughs> Back in the, uh, 15th, 16th century, up until the 18th century, tarot decks were independently published. So they were printed by certain artists. You had to go, you had to buy. They, they weren't as common. In the 1900s, when tarot became mass-produced and was available to everyone, um, people would just buy a tarot deck and turn it into their profession. So a lot of tarot readers perpetrated this myth that you need to be gifted a tarot deck in order to kind of like make it less accessible. So really it's 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 kind of a con that uh, a lot of other psychics and uh, tarot readers perpetrate because they don't want you to go to Barnes & Noble and buy a tarot deck and then start charging. <laughs> Creating their own drop security. Exactly. They want the clients because if you go out and you buy a tarot deck and you're like, well, I'm just going to read for myself, that really lowers the the bracket or the need, the necessity for other readers. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge myth. I mean, we see it all the time in the shop. People look at a tarot deck and they're like, oh, my God, I love this. My mom will never buy this for me for Christmas. Or if I Venmo you, can you buy this deck for me since I can't buy it for myself? As central as the history of tarot is to its legacy and practice, many modern readers are unaware of it, or simply uninterested. Keep an eye out on your Marathon Life feed for the full Dark Domain crossover episode. And now, part two. Happy Halloween! And welcome to a very special episode of Mars on Life. My name is Sebastian Shug. I run a little YouTube channel called Seabass. On this channel, a wide variety of creepypastas, scary stories, and happenings are often narrated. This episode's segment is no exception. The music from this episode is from a wide variety of talented musicians. Ranging from Mew, or Muji, if you prefer, to Kevin McLeod. Sound effects are from freesound.org. We sincerely hope you enjoy La Llorona. disorienting dream, 
I take a quick, blurry-eyed look at my surroundings. The night air is cool on my skin, and I appear to be in a wooded area. I do not recognize where I am. The reason why I'm crying settles on me like a miasma. And I immediately wish I didn't know why I was this way. That emotional pathway has been pried open. And I suspect that once it is open, that it will never close like a door that has been rent from its hinges. Ah. <laughs> uh, well, I'm weeping because I miss my children. I fervently pray that one day that they will return to me. But I know that what is dead can never return. And I remember him. He was always nice, even when he was cruel. He had a smile that played across his lips when he gave me a kiss, or when he glanced me with his fist. He was beautiful. I, I wondered why he picked someone as dirty as me. I was damaged goods. A mama soltera. I was struggling to support two kids. But he loved me even with my baggage. But there would always be something between us. The constant reminder that I was someone else's. I loved him and he did his best to love me back. My tears burn their way down my cheek and I wonder why there's nothing left in me except for this love and hate. A sound snaps me out of my reverie. Someone snapped a twig a few feet behind me. I ignore it. I'm too lost in the moment with my memories and my pain. In the back of my mind, I know he's drawing closer. He kneels behind me and puts a hand on my lower back and asks what I'm doing in the woods at night. I recognize it truly is odd to see a woman weeping in the middle of nowhere. I turn to face him, and the instant I see his face I am struck with the horrible realization that he looks just like him. I give a startled cry and that sends him backwards onto his trasero. He's gone pale. He's a dead ringer. He could be his twin. He could be him. He is him. He scoots backwards, but I am on him in an instant. I crash down on him. My weight pinions him. My long nails rip at his face and neck. He raises his hands to cover his face, but I change targets and tear into his unprotected stomach. I'm lost in my rage. My eyes are bloodshot and tear-filled. At times I see him screaming in terror, and other times I see children weeping. 
I hear him begging me, and I hear him telling me the children are in the way. I hear children weeping, pleading, shrieking as well. My attack slows and I look over the damage that I've done. I've ripped him apart. He twitches, but it has become a compulsory motion. He's dead. The image of my children's bloody, mewling faces have begun to fade, and the tears have stopped. I look closer at the man and realize that they didn't really look alike, but that they probably acted the same, stringing on desperate women and trying to leave them. I get up and look at my blood-stained hands. I wander. I no longer want to think of the man. Something tugs at my mind, but I pay it no attention. Something like the low whine of a child sounds off in my head, but I ignore it. To think of it is surely the path to madness. I don't think of it. My mind goes blank, and I'm swallowed up in a trance. I come to weeping. I cry out in despair. My throat burns and I struggle to suck air into my lungs. Each sob pangs my entire body and I suddenly become aware that I do not know where I am or what I'm doing here. And finally, part three. Well, listeners, you've now entered that part of the show. Uh, yes, that part of the show. Uh, not, not, not like it's a bad thing, but you've now entered that part of the show, which uh, follows the Mars on Life tradition of reviewing a film for Halloween. Uh, two years ago, yes, two years ago, Sebastian and I reviewed The Exorcist Three movie that is very close to my heart not close to his and then last year we went out in the wild thought you know what it seems like things were winding down with covid little did we know and we watched shin godzilla most recent live action godzilla film with our dear friend uh ryan wilson who once again huge thanks to him for being on the show as many times as he was last year which were a few but they were still of great importance, especially with just the progression of the show, given how weird 2021 was and little did we know what we had in store in the next year. Anyway, this year I'm with Andrew and we're talking about a movie that honestly was way less uh, creepy or even thriller-esque than I imagined it would be. Maybe not thriller, but at least supernatural. What What did we watch, Andrew? The title of the film, Bringing Out the Dead, you think it's going to be something creepy, something haunting, 
And it's more of an introspective into the life of a, as it's described, a monumentally burned out Manhattan uh, ambulance paramedic, EMT, EMS, insert acronym for those professionals here. And it was, it was an, a fun watch. Um, I think there is some things that do kind of bring the creepiness element in. It was a few kind of horror-esque moments that we'll touch on, but really, if you're in the mood to think about to think about death and life and death and you know what is death and you know dealing with death, I think that's where this movie really ties in. Uh, this movie w- did a really good job based off a novel. Uh, this movie did a really good job of taking a look at death from the lens of somebody who sees it every day and like you know how precious life and death can be and how people just want to be let go sometimes. So if it's not so much your Halloween slasher, but if you just are fascinated by the, uh, excuse me, by the idea of death, then this one's for you. I guess a little bit more fitting with the, maybe even a Dia de los Muertos because there are a lot of elements of the dead speaking or in this movie's case, ghost. It was a, it was a fun one. I was surprised and uh, it was a good pick, Ryan. Well, the credit goes to you because uh, I because I handed Andrew like a good handful of movies. Uh, most of them, admittedly, I'd already seen sort of following the Mars on Life tradition of Ryan has this movie that he thinks has really creepy elements or elements that I, I, pref- I guess, prefer in horror that are on one hand, they're very mainstream, but on the other hand, they are so they they work so well in a film that is so intentionally outside of the horror genre that it it gives the movie enough of a pass and obviously something like exorcist 3 it's in the title you know it, it's it's already going to have that affiliation with one of the greatest horror films of all time and with shin godzilla i mean yeah it, it it's kind of gone all over the place from being straight up horror with the first film in the 1950s to camp to hardcore sci-fi to bordering on a live action anime to literal anime and then all of a sudden you get this commentary on the Fukushima disaster that is more so a political satire if anything else with bringing out the dead it it's it's everything you said and it was also something that I had not seen so it was something where the thing that drew both of us to it had to do with who was working both in front of the camera and behind the camera which i'm i'm smirking about just because this is a <laughs> duo that it's so you know when the irishman came out a lot of people were freaking out over the fact that al pacino and martin scorsese had never worked together up until that point and i had somewhat of a similar reaction coming across this movie uh, a few months ago, actually, I was reading The Age of Cage. Hint, hint, wink, wink, listeners, uh, where it talks about a certain film that was made in the late 90s, of course, Bringing Out the Dead, directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Nicolas Cage in the heyday of his career. And it gives you something that on one hand definitely gives you those Nicolas Cage-isms. But on the other hand, is so unlike any other Martin Scorsese movie that, you know, I don't get me wrong. I love The Departed. I love Gangs of New York. This might be up there for me. I got to say a large part of it had to do with just 
the visual aspects. Like, I think his most visually stunning movie might be Taxi Driver. This was up there. This was almost neck and neck from, and obviously it's in New York, so there's going to be a lot of those elements to it. But it, it's the under the New York underbelly. That's primarily where this film takes place, and seeing the city streets at nighttime just the sort of Vaseline blur on the camera uh, to borrow a joke from Sebastian recently. Uh, like it's, it just added so much to this kind of creepy grimy atmosphere that, you know, for somebody who, you know, is very fascinated and focused on just the, the state of cities in any decade, it, it just kind of filled in that little void for me of like, wow, this really, this this really delivers on being atmospheric. And of course, Nicolas Cage, the man, the myth, the legend. Prime Nicolas Cage. As you said, like all the Cageisms are apparent in this movie. It is a, I don't want to say peak, but yeah, prime Cage performance. And, you, and it has a great cast too. I mean, you have uh, Patricia Arquette. Uh, you have, uh, as I guess, a love interest. You have John Goodman as the, an ambulance driver slash EMT. And he actually has pretty decent, well, decent chemistry with Nicolas Cage. And then Ving Rhames, definitely a, a really fun role from Ving Rhames as another EMT. So uh, it was a, a kind of a, a really top-heavy cast here. Tom Sizemore, who... He just seemed to really fit the moment of the 90s. Like he, he was meant for a movie like this. His uh, chaotic energy that he brings to this role as an even crazier EMT than Nicolas Cage's Frank Pierce. And then you have uh, some other interesting roles. You have Mark Anthony as Noel, a, essentially a crazy man who uh, is dealing with mental health issues who pops up in the movie often. And then uh, some other slightly familiar 90s faces uh, Ada Totoro as a nurse in the hospital and uh, I think the doctor looked familiar as well Nestor Serrano but he looked so familiar and I <laughs> couldn't pinpoint him from anywhere and I even looked at his filmography and I was like I know I've seen this guy I where where <laughs> yeah it's just one of those faces that I guess he's just in a lot of stuff but he fit the role perfectly and uh from the onset, it does appear to be an EMT drama, which uh, I believe there's a few of them out there, but it, it brings all the chaotic energy that you'd expect. But it also brings with it uh, the plot of the movie. Essentially, Nicolas Cage sees the ghost of the patients that he couldn't save. He is distraught because for months as an EMT, he hasn't saved anyone, which you know, I guess saved is subjective because <laughs> I guess he does take a lot of people to the hospital and they do survive. But yeah, you're, I guess when you're an EMT, it's those people having the cardiac arrest. It's those people, in one case, a woman having twins. And, you know, you, there's the, that's a real life or death situation. So he just goes down a, a dark spiral after he doesn't save anyone for a while and he begins to see the ghosts. And I think that was something that initially attracted us to the idea of the movie that, you know, it's going to be a ghost movie. But I think Scorsese, I don't recall anything in his career resembling anything like a straight up horror movie, let alone ghosts. 
I don't know if this was new territory for Scorsese then. I mean, obviously, he's an all-timer, so I'm not going to say that this was new for him or like a book adaptation, but Scorsese, I think really it just was, like, as you said, just an atmospheric portrait of a New York summer night in the 90s. It looked like it was summer. But, yeah, just really the the chaoticness of an EMT life mixed with some just introspective, scenes and thoughts of you know what it means to uh you know what life and death really means i guess not it it was not too heavy-handed but really it did make you think because you have some people who want to die and then you have some people who they say maybe we shouldn't save this guy and so forth so just lots of heavy discussion and thoughts around the idea of death yeah i mean it the only other movie of his that i know directly approaches just straight up horror elements is um shutter island which is actually pretty good too what i would i say it's among his best no but it's it's absolutely worth watching it's absolutely worth having a good time great cast it's got dicaprio mark ruffalo it's it's a really interesting watch but this i mean yeah even when i had read about bringing out the dead over the summer I really did have this idea that it was intended to be this just supernatural thriller and it it was going to be the kind of, I don't know, the kind of paranoid, exhaustive drama that Nick Cage was doing with the likes of Leaving Las Vegas. And, you know, I I thought it was going to have a real, it it was going to really lean into that. And instead, I honestly, I, I kept thinking about it last night watching it how it is so it's so weird when i think back to our jackie brown discussion how and and same goes with natural born killers how in the 90s there were so many of these movies that really knuckled down on just the the paranoid state of a either a city landscape or just sweeping landscapes in general and i don't know if that was a product of just you know, independent filmmaking gone fully mainstream in a way where even somebody as established like Martin Scorsese, uh, Martin Scorsese really wanted to be like, okay, I want to really do something drastically different from everything else I've done. Less flash, less of the typical faces in my movies you're used to seeing, uh, but also get real talent. And again, you mentioned it with the cast, like there was also uh, a few other names I wanted to quickly add as well. Uh, Scorsese himself plays the one of the dispatchers which you kind of notice right away like the way the guy talks you're like okay I know who that is you got the late great Michael K Williams as a drug dealer that Nick Cage's character Frank Pierce uh attends to seeing him in anything is always a treat um I remember he was supposed to actually be in that Han Solo movie but due to reshoots I think he got recast or he something happened something changed and he whether or not there's film out there that exists of him in a Star Wars movie we may never know I I'm of the opinion that it exists it's just now in a Lucasfilm vault um, and then you also have Queen Latifah as the voice of another dispatcher who yeah. Ving Rhames's character kind of has a bit of a correspondence with whenever she's like hey something's going on and he's like hey baby um so it's it's just but yeah i mean i i think again just the atmosphere and the landscape 
elements really they really collide in a way that make me wonder if because again there's so much that goes on in every decade but in the 90s i feel like this movie was such an encapsulation of some of the stranger aspects of that decade and not, not to really get into a you know what does this movie really mean discussion but because obviously we're going to talk about the movie but i feel it needs to be addressed that this along with the other two movies that we've reviewed on the show really does an outstanding job at just encapsulating the mania of that time frame where you know you have the uh her, her name's like sister fetus and she's walking around oh, yeah. dressed mm-hmm. as a nun she's got a microphone and she's wearing a chain necklace with a i guess plastic recreation of a fetus and she's essentially advocating for you know we we need to not have abortion or you know all all, all of the things that the sort of moral majority or or all of the the basically the the whole idea all the ideas of uh family values and trying to stand up to all the changes that happened following the 60s and 70s with this growing conservative resurgence in the 90s plus the aftermath of the drug epidemic in inner cities following the 80s thanks to the Reagan administration I mean there's so much of that that you see in this film and yet it never really distracts from what Frank is doing or or how he's feeling because with Frank and I, I will say too if I if I let my hair grow any longer for like another couple weeks I would have started looking <laughs> like Frank <laughs> like he he really is just a man that is not only so sick of the job, but it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Logan, where for like a good chunk of the movie, Logan just wants to sleep. And then finally, you know, he's out near the Canadian border with all these mutant kids and he finally sleeps. It, it was a little bit like that, where it's just like it's a guy that's just like, I hate this job so much. It's it's the graveyard shift, no pun intended. And it's like, I, I can't live like this. And, and knowing people who have lived like that and seen how it's wrecked them, I can understand why this was like perfect subject matter to approach for a film. And it's, you know, and this is also years before insomnia where you get kind of a similar, a similar thing. The only difference being Al Pacino's in Canada, uh, Canada and Alaska for a period of time where the sun just never sets. In this case, it's more like, no, I, my job is from nine o'clock in the evening all the way until, I don't know, seven o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So if it's, it's funny, if this movie were more popular, I feel like this would be the it just yeah, that fits in the trope of the New York City is crazy type, you know, tropes. And it's like it's funny, like that this movie was pretty under the radar for considering the cast and the director. But yeah, like this is. <laughs> prime and i'm not going to say scorsese is rolling up the tired trope of new york in the 90s hot summer night you know the uh the under the dark seedy underbelly but that's essentially what it was and like yeah nicholas cage being an emt in the seediest areas as well dealing with the seediest characters there are the again like i don't want to say like it started to feel cliche but there was a lot of cases where it's just like well you know you kind of not surprised like there's the alcoholic who gets called every night who's like homeless and really out of sorts yeah there's the the shooting the drug dealing shooting there is a homicide uh with another character that pops in a drug dealer 
and it's um everything you can imagine like even the beginning in the beginning when he uh, Nicholas Cage and John Goodman's character get called to their first case they go to this kind of cramped little New York City apartment and there's just an older an older I'd imagine Italian guy uh, who is dead and something I don't want to assume but uh, they put on Sinatra for him and his heart starts beating again and then he just sticks through the whole movie but it's again it's just very anybody who has never been to New York would see this and just be like yep that that's New York City so I guess in a sense not surprising to see the portrayal of New York City in this way but uh, yeah, just against the uh, the backdrop of Nicolas Cage's life, you know, to give a quick, you know, rundown of the plot. The first victim he saves is this older guy, uh, a father figure, and he's uh, has a heart attack. He's in the hospital, and he's a recurring figure throughout the movie. Nicolas Cage uh, says, "Play the Sinatra," and then he his heart starts beating again. So then they take him to the hospital. And he's on the verge of dying. He needs to be resuscitated or forget the EMT term, essentially shocked uh, dozens of times or a dozen, over a dozen times to hang in there. And throughout the movie, the man's ghost, which Nicolas Cage, here's the ghost of these victims. The man's ghost is telling Nicolas Cage, don't save me. And he's like, don't save me, asshole. Or he starts kind of being mean to him and, uh, throughout the whole movie, Nicolas Cage is trying to deal with this. He's like, what do I do? Like, my job is to save these people. This is a guy who's telling me to let him go. And it's further complicated because the past few months of his life, there was this woman who, a young woman who he couldn't save. He And it was a mistake because, or it was an accident. He was, uh, she was unconscious on the sidewalk and he tried to put the breathing tube down her lung, into her lungs, but he kept going to the stomach. And he did it a few times and the minutes are so crucial and she died. So he's wrought with guilt over this. And in the meantime, the ghosts are all tormenting him essentially. Uh, so the old guy is like, let me go. And Nicolas Cage still sees this young woman's face everywhere. And alongside that, you have the man, the older man's family, uh, namely Patricia Arquette's character, Mary Burke, who is also uh, has a troubled past and, Nicholas Cage just hits it off while he, I guess, is a, you know, is smitten with her. He's, uh, there's some Nicholas Cage wooing in the movie that's pretty funny, you know? She's just like, my father's dying. And then he's like, oh, you want some pizza? Like, I don't know, I can't. It's totally like Nicholas Cageism, like, um, only Nicholas Cage can do it. And through the movie, he semi successfully gets her to, have some pizza with him essentially but or you know go with him but uh alongside Nicolas Cage's ghost tormenting him there's a bit of a love story and it's uh, very cagey something that I really I really got a kick out of was and I, I think I sent it to you to the to the chat where I was like oh here's what I'm watching and it's that scene he's looking at her with a very forlorn look on his face and they're sort of talking about how, wow, it's so easy to talk to you. Yeah. It's so easy to talk to you. It's like talking to a priest and uh, you know, Frank's like, my mother always said, you look like a priest. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, that's the one thing with this movie that it's really weird because you look at the poster, by the way, for the film, it's, it's all red. You have the cross shape and not like a crucifix, but sort of the typical like red, 
you know, like hospital, like Red Cross, it's the inside of the cross that isn't red. And instead, you see Nick Cage's just baggy eyes. And you look at the poster and you're thinking, wow, this is going to be a really terrifying experience. And then you sit down and actually watch the film. And before I even mention that, by the way, I, one of the one of the reviews I read, and it, I think it actually might have been Scorsese himself saying it years later, that one of the things that really hurt the movie was the way it was advertised made it seem like this was kind of one of those What's the best way to describe it? it? Basically, the movie was kind of like one of those go out and drive or or like speed sort of films where it's like, oh, it's it's a thriller where it's like the uh, Michael Bay movie Ambulance with our our, our L.A. boy, Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> yeah. it, it basically with that kind of feel or like another Nick Cage movie gone in 60 seconds. The reality, mm-hmm. though, is that it's neither of those movies whatsoever. And the tone is absolutely all over the place, but the fact that you're watching a man sort of descend into madness, which is definitely, I think is slowly becoming one of my favorite types of movies. <laughs> Maybe that says something about me. I hope it doesn't, but it, it, there's something fascinating in, in, in not only just the fact that you're watching this character who is naturally played by a guy that's great at playing maddening characters and Matt, you know, just, characters mm-hmm. going through paranoia and insanity. I think it also helps in what I mentioned earlier with just the visuals of the film in that you're watching this kind of through his cracked lens of just his, his nightly outings for his, for his job. And it just further adds to this idea that you are in a, to borrow the, the name of a different film, a mad, 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 mad world it just helps that much further when he's dealing with all these characters out, you know, you've got, you've got Noel, uh, Mark Antony's character who is just like this out of control, you know, drugged out guy who is doing just about anything he can do to both get back into the hospital, but then escape it. Um, which from a character standpoint is kind of, I don't know. I, I, I kind of like that idea in a character where he's like, I got to go back because I want to die. But then like he actually gets to the hospital and then he's like, okay, bye. And then leaves. And <laughs> yeah. like, I, I don't know for me that there's something I can imagine critics in the nineties watching this and just thinking like, why does he need to be this way? Why did he do that? This doesn't make sense. And then Tom Sizemore basically being a much more violent version of Frank where he's beating up people that he's supposed to save. <laughs> And then you have Ving Rhames' character who, and I, I, I remember I had to text you when this scene happened just because I was like, wow, this is great. Where they're in, they're at like this goth club. Yeah. And some guy is overdosed. And the whole time he starts turning into sort of your stereotypical black minister. All the while Nick Cage is, is administering to this guy. You know, he's telling everyone, you know, we got to hold our hands. And then like at some point he kind of looks down and, Frank is like, okay, it's going to happen. And the guy wakes up after they're like, you know, please, Lord. And it it just, again, with the tone, it is so all over the place. But I think when you're dealing with a bunch of characters that are so larger than life and they're so not who you expect EMS services to be or just EMS drivers in general, like you're not expecting, you know, they're, they're calling their ambulance buses and 
they're joking around and and they're you know having cigarettes while they're in the ambulance um they're <laughs> yeah. they're trying to you know they're 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 turning on the siren so they can go get food because it's oh shit it's two o'clock in the morning and the fried chicken place is going to close how <laughs> yeah. how are we going to get there you know it just i don't know for me it, it all just worked in enough of a way where it it served almost as here's a day in the life of this man but there was almost this anthology aspect to it where this is just some of the crazy stuff that he encounters every yeah. hour in the evening so um i i just i don't know i i just find this movie to be kind of unforgettable in a way like not not to really go nuts there but like it just no yeah it really does just have and i should point out too by the way because i you had mentioned patricia arquette and sort of the relationship that they have her and nick cage were married at this point which i didn't realize yeah yeah um, and I it, it dawned on me watching the film. I was like, hey, wait a minute. Weren't, weren't they married at some point? And then I, I checked, actually, before we started recording, just to be 100% sure. Because um, I, I know I had read about it in in Age of Cage, where it was like, what? what? He's, you know, he's working with his wife, and he's doing a Scorsese movie. And and the picture that they used in that book, I, I don't remember it exactly. But I, and I want to say he's just sitting on in a couch. And it might be during that whole drug sequence which is like the cagey one of the cagiest moments in the film yeah but it i mean even also again from a filmmaking standpoint that's where the the kind of creep factor comes in but it also goes into a reversal of it's frank thinking to himself i can save these people like and he's reaching out and grabbing all the hands of these ghosts and pulling them up and then obviously it all changes with the gorgeous scene of him trying to save Rose where it's all filmed backwards and somehow the, the lips and the die, I mean, obviously they're dubbed, but somehow the dialogue is matching or their, their lips are matching the dubbing, which just makes me think, were they making John Goodman and Nick Cage talk backwards and then somehow get their lips to match? I don't know. It, it just fascinating, but it, it was just, him in a chair and Scorsese talking to him. And just from that picture alone, it wasn't enough to explain to me, well, what's this movie about? If anything, between that photo and the name of the movie, I thought it was going to be something really dark and morbid. Instead, it was just this, again, just this dark telling of working in a, in a seedy part of New York city in, in, in the high point of the nineties, where it just seemed as though, everything was on the verge of apocalypse from a class standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from a societal standpoint. In some ways that's true. And in some ways that we're still living in the after effects of all that. Uh, In some aspects we are, we definitely are, but it also is just perfect encapsulation within this one man who, again, the fact that these are all people that are trying to save others and they're either racked with just these twisted personalities or just racked with guilt it all it all just keeps coming to a head scene after scene after scene and then finally the other cagiest moment that i i really laughed too hard at is when frank is trying to really get himself going with sort of this cocktail of drugs and he's like it's not working oh it's not working and tom sizemore is driving and he's like ah come on you know and he's like such a madman and there's moments where the like the, the 
actions on the scene will speed up. And, you know, sometimes when movies do that, it gets a little kitschy and you're like, okay, it's not 2003 anymore. Take it easy. And there's other movies like Nightcrawler that do it where you're like, okay, that you're, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's a driving movie. I get it. Same with this. There's that great, this great moment. I have to get it down word for word where Frank looks over at Tom Sizemore and he says to him, Tom, where are the band-aids? This is an ambulance, isn't it? <laughs> and I just, it's just the way he says it. And I, I don't know. I've just, I, I've never heard Nick Cage say band-aids. So I'm like, and, and again, and I'll, I'll, stop here like the beauty of this film is that while we do get those cagey moments it doesn't accelerate to like what we see with bad lieutenant or national treasure 2 or matchstick men like there's not there's nothing equivalent to him going to the pharmacy saying you know or a guy's like hey buddy you cut the line and he's like everyone kicked so hard that you've pissed blood like there's (laughs) nothing close to that and it's still within the confines of this character that still feels so believable and this is something we haven't introduced yet so believable to the point where he's trying to get himself fired yeah there's a funny bit where like he uh well he he apparently you know he's abused his sick days he's coming late all the time and his boss is just like what are you doing man like i gotta fire you but I can't. Like, we got nobody on the buses tonight. It's like, I'll fire you tomorrow, you know? And Nick Cage is just arguing with him. Come on, be a man. Or like, be a man, do it. And then he's just like, uh, the actor who plays the captain, too, is so good. But the whole time, he's just like, I'll fire you tomorrow. Just go back out there. And, you know, it, and then in comes the pairings with the different EMTs. So you're John Goodman, you're Bing Rames, and then you're Tom Sizemore. Yeah, he is extremely dissatisfied. You know, they only show a few glimpses of his personal life. And also, too, one thing I thought they didn't mention, too, is that, you know, EMTs don't get paid very well. And it's kind of evident when he goes back to his apartment and it's just kind of a little crappy little... He's an alcoholic, but his apartment isn't great, even though he has a great view because, you know, it's a movie in New York. But he's just totally living the EMT life. He goes home, he drinks, he falls asleep, he wakes up, he goes to work, but... He's completely miserable, and I feel like actually there are some unreliable narrator type, what is it, tropes, or there's some unreliable narrator moments in the movie. Like, for instance, he's on a call with Bing Rames and, and Marcus, and they have a call where they save a baby, or actually this is a, kind of a darker point of the movie. So there's a woman who's pregnant, and they go to a very seedy part of town, these immigrants living in a really spot they shouldn't be and this woman's giving birth and the she's giving birth to twins and marcus delivers a healthy baby boy and he's as proud as can be and nicholas cage delivers a baby that is i'm not going to say you know it, it wasn't breathing and so he takes it to the hospital it's not very clear if it was dead on arrival or if it had some breaths but it wasn't doing good and the baby dies in the er and it's traumatic for everybody. It, the movie does a great job of showing, well, it doesn't show the parents, but of showing how in the ER, which they show earlier doctors dismissing many people, being like, ah, whatever, leave that guy in the corner, uh, you know, send that drug addict out of here. And Don't make me take off my sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, 
the great guard, the great NYPD guy, who I assume is NYPD, who's guarding the ER room, who's shoving people out of the way, throwing sick people out of the ER. So it's a madhouse, but once the baby comes in, it, everybody drops what they're doing and try to save the baby, and it doesn't. So as you can imagine, Nicolas Cage is distraught. He didn't save the kid, but Ving Rhames is ecstatic. You know, they get ready for their next call, and he's just like, this job's great. I could work three days a week, maybe not two. He's, uh, he's flying high. He gets a call from Queen Latifah that says, there's another call, and Nicolas Cage is like, I don't want to do it, but... They do it, and Ving Rhames gets excited, and he flips the ambulance because he's speeding. And Nicolas Cage walks away. You know, Marcus is just laughing it up. He's They were drinking alcohol, and Nicolas Cage is walking away, and he's like, that's it. I quit. And this happens about midway through the movie. You would think, like, there would be some kind of, like, repercussions or trouble. And, like, I know, you know, suspension of belief for the movie uh, – there, but yeah, there is a little bit of an unreliable narrator because you think even for a man wanting to get fired, flipping your ambulance on a way to a call with alcohol in your system and in the car, you would think that would get somebody fired. But Nicolas Cage goes to work the next day. And, you know, I don't think they even show him at home the next day, but uh, mm-hmm. he goes to work the next day. So <clears throat> it's just like he hates the job. He wants to get fired. But he's motivated to kind of break this rut of saving someone, getting rid of the literal and figurative, I guess, ghosts that he's seeing. So as much as he is burned out, the, uh, and I think it might be the one of the last moments of Marcus that you see when the ambulance flips over, he says, as Nicholas Cage is walking away from this flipped over ambulance, which by the way, nobody seems to pay attention in New York city, you know, traffic is moving along as normal. Nobody really is calling 911 for them. But being Rames yet shouts at him. He's like, you can't, you're going to keep seeing the ghost kid. It's like, you just don't walk away now. You know, Nicolas Cage walks away. And I guess the movie enters. It's sort of, I guess, second act at this point. But that's about halfway through. And yeah, I think that's where a lot of the tone switches goes on. Like, you can't tell really what tone they're sticking with. I'm not sure if that's a problem of the source material or the editor. I trust Scorsese. But there was a lot of like tone switches there because... The second act of the movie is really Nicolas Cage dealing with Patricia Arquette's character and the ghost of the old man and trying to find closure with Rose's ghost. Things calm down. Nicolas Cage goes back to work the next day and he's paired with Tom Sizemore. But yeah, you get like five or ten minutes of relief. And then Tom Sizemore is even crazier than Nicolas Cage. And uh, yeah, they go on their calls. But essentially what ends up happening, the old man, Patricia Arquette's dad, Nicholas Cage keeps running into him. He, the, the dad keeps trying to say, you know, just let me die, let me die. And each time Nicholas Cage is struggling more and more. You know, one thing I thought that was interesting, like talking about the way the movie addresses like the ending, like uh, Nicholas Cage ends up deciding to let the father die. He goes to him in the intensive care unit where he's supposed to be, quote unquote, doing better. And he switches all the medical equipment to his own body to make it seem as he's uh, heart still beating, breathing normally. He lets the dad pass. It's implied. Yeah. So he puts the medical devices back on the dad after a few minutes of dad not breathing and he lets him go. And what was interesting too, is that the ghost doesn't say thank you or anything that would have been a little maybe cheesier, but you know, it's the ghost doesn't say like, ah, oh, thank you. You know, like Nick, it's not very implied that Nicholas Cage gets his closure. 
So you're thinking right. like, where's, where is this going? Then it gets dark again. Then you, then you have Tom Sizemore going full crazy or maybe it happened before, but this is also at the same time that Knowles comes back in the picture and uh, Tom Sizemore almost kills him. He's been, he's been antagonizing him throughout the whole movie and Nicolas Cage, I guess, finally breaks. He's like, we got to save him. We got to tube him. As Noel's laying, like, beaten up in a bed, and as the father's dying, he goes, he decides, all right, you know, the night's over. It's, you know, it's, uh, my shift is done. It's like 6 a.m. The sun is rising. I'm done. Let me go tell Patricia Arquette what's, what happened to her father. And then he gets the closure. And then he goes up to her door, and he says, you know, your father passed. And Patricia Arquette tells him, you know, it's not your fault. You didn't have to feel so guilty. But he sees this through the face of Rosa, the woman that he couldn't save earlier, the ghost that's been haunting him. That ends up being his closure. I totally, I I have to say, I wasn't super satisfied by the ending. But Mm. I just really wonder if that's just the source material thing versus a Scorseseism, where, I don't know, it didn't feel super satisfying the way he got the closure. Otherwise, uh, you know, the movie just leaves a lot of other things. He gets his own closure, but nobody else does. Like other things the movie leaves you off with is Tom Sizemore attacking his ambulance with a bat (laughs) as they're leaving the hospital, just going crazy, breaking his ambulance. And, uh, you know, at the end of the movie, Nicolas Cage is getting some rest with Patricia Arquette in his EMT uniform. It's not exactly implied that he's going to quit necessarily either after that. So it's uh it's it's difficult to, I, I think I had a hard time understanding what Scorsese was trying to tell us with the ending I guess and that's where I kind of struggled with you know based on novels you know like is he just follow is he doing his due diligence and following the book or is he just trying to paint his own picture but I I have to say I had trouble understanding the ending I, I did have that moment where watching the ending when especially just how it was framed. I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is where it's going to end. And it did. And I think that's sometimes that's an issue with. And again, I haven't read the book either, so I I can't say. But I do get the feeling that both in films, but also in a lot of 90s literature, at least the 90s literature that I have read, there's always that trouble of it's I hate to say it, but it's almost like a J.J. Abrams movie where it's like, oh, I've got this movie that's happening and there's a beginning but then I got to end it uh shit you know and and obviously the anybody can can poke fun at at his filmography and be like oh he doesn't know how to end things but that was one of those things I was actually okay with I mean I should say ultimately it's hard for me to actually find that many faults other than initially I was going to say tone but I sort of rationalized it in this review saying like well no i mean yeah the tone is all over the place but is that that that's kind of part of the point of just this descent into madness but the ending itself i think was just simply the best you could have with a character who honestly there i feel like frank's story could just keep on going and going especially if he never gets fired from the job and i think that's that's always a tricky part with movies like this and especially other movies we've we've reviewed where what is a satisfying ending and what is a good way to wrap up the story in such a way where it feels natural it feels like it's part of the character's progression but it also needs to be a good ending to a movie and you know it's hard to say whether or not the ending 
is part of the reason why the, this movie fell flat for some people. But I, I, I don't know. I think for me, I couldn't think of a better ending for just a story about working this what's supposed to be a very honorable job and in a lot of ways is it's one of our most necessary jobs and yet it's showing you just how how much it lacks in rewards and and in some ways and i wanted to mention this earlier just this particular hospital which as far as i can tell it looks like it either is affiliated with the church or oh yeah used to be sort of a church hospital like the fact that it's so broken down and it's so grimy and disgusting. And it's like people are throwing up. People are bleeding everywhere profusely. Obviously, I, I could go off on a whole tangent about how oh, it's it's an indictment on the American healthcare system. See Joker. But at the same time, I think it's it's kind of necessary for a movie like this where it's like this. This is how rewarding my job is, where. I'm intended to go out and save people that are on the brink of death, bring them back to a hospital and then the hospital can't do anything that like that in of itself is so absurd. And yet it, it just, it, I don't know for me, it, it tied in. It's the way it is, unfortunately, but it ties in with this one character's just descent into like, I don't know what to do. I want to quit this job. I want to leave it. There's nothing else I'd rather do. And even when you see his home, you know, he doesn't have a whole lot of things. But when you see some of his books, for example, you know, he's got these like historic uh, historic. He's got some of these, um, you know, more popular texts. He's got some medical texts. And then all of a sudden he's got Journey to the End of the Night, which is, is like a very controversial book that I've heard a little too much about. Haven't read it, but I don't know if I intend to. I don't think so. But I, like it, it just kind of shows that this is not. This is not a stable world and nothing will be stable as long as things remain the way they are. So it's almost like it's just this never ending cycle. And even Frank can't find a way out of that cycle, except and again, this is my long winded way of, I guess, rationalizing the ending, even though it actually is kind of undone with a moment earlier in the film where he actually does get to go to bed and go to sleep. But he does finally sort of sleep but he's with um patricia arquette's character so there is this sense that like okay he's finally found his relief but it's it's almost a cliffhanger in a way where okay he gets his relief but what happens next is he gonna go back to work the next day is he finally gonna come back and say i quit is he <laughs> like what's he gonna do and I think having it be so uncertain just leaves open the door to, is he going to kill himself? Is he going to actually quit? Is he going to, you know, crash his own ambulance and try and kill himself? Like it, it, it really just shows that this guy has no other options left to be free. No, I think that, no, that's a, that's a good sense of the ending. I think I, I, I guess, and the ending too, I thought the movie, I was also kind of expecting some, sort of like and again like maybe I just wasn't paying attention but some sort of more clear-cut commentary on like life and death I feel like the movie throughout the movie does like kind of like it hints at like some message of life and death and midway through when there's a few deaths in the movie with the drug deal and the baby dying I thought well this movie is just trying to remind us that you know like death is a part of life and it's a tragedy but like you know like it's um happens every day and it's just like you're 
like very common trope like very common cliche of just like you know death's just part of life type deal but I thought the movie was like kind of going to start to hint at something like different or deeper but then like maybe it did I think maybe that's what didn't hit for me when he got his closure from Rosa she told Nicolas Cage you know it's not your fault don't feel guilty about it and it's like okay well Nicolas Cage got you know got his ending but the audience like you so you showed us the chaoticness of an emt and how close they are with death and how they deal with it but i just feel like the whole like aspect of the uh, like death i feel like it's even in the title bringing out the dead i kind of even still don't understand what the title means i guess in that sense because me too honestly i yeah because i just feel like there was going to be this bigger message on life and death outside of the typical death's part of life deal with it type stuff so I think that's where I kind of maybe also kind of missed the mark uh, because otherwise throughout the movie, what I started to get the sense of was just like, Oh, well essentially that it sucks. And they really show it with Patricia Arquette's family. Who's just tormented. The mom has to be taken home in an ambulance because she's just catatonic or, you know, in a trance. So that's really hard, but um, it's like, and even Nicholas Cage says in a moment, he has a great line where he's just like EMTs are just a grief mop. That's all yeah. I am. I thought that was like a really nice, well, really good line, but I just feel like that part wasn't explored enough and it just ended up being more about Nicolas Cage's own demons. I guess that's where I'm feeling a little unsatisfied, but I still thought, you know, it was still a fun ride, no pun intended, but it's funny how like a lot of these characters too don't pop up throughout the rest of the movie because John Goodman was so good and then he just disappears for the second half of the movie. And the same thing with Ming Rings. And so there are some choices in this movie that were a little peculiar. But again, without reading the original book, I'm just going to attribute that to source material issues versus Scorsese. So, and I, and I never thought, and again, I haven't seen all of his movies, but I also never thought Scorsese had a problem with, um, you know, messaging or ending the movie, uh, you know, on a satisfying note. I don't know if you think Scorsese has any issue with also like messaging in his movies, if it's like always never like very clear or not. I know I'm, I'm not the most perfect Scorsese fan because I feel, I feel like movies that he's made in recent years have excluding the Irishman, which I, I, I think I highly recommended that um, way back in the early episodes of Mars on life to Sebastian. I was like, this is, one of those movies people need to go watch i feel like if i put on a suit and put a pillow under it and slick my hair back i could be jimmy hoffa for halloween um but they wouldn't dare they wouldn't dare um uh, like i don't know i feel i feel like he is trying not to really start sounding like a, a snooty film critic but i do think he's trying to recapture some of the glory of his films in the eighties and nineties. And again, I'd stretch it to the early two thousands. Cause for me, that's, I think his best period. Um, I, I, like I said, I love the departed. I love gangs of New York, but like Wolf of wall street, it was fine. You know, um, I, I have to look at his filmography to really kind of capture, capture the, the early two thousands period, just because there's, there's, I know there's so much with him, but obviously, I mean, his films in the seventies, like Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, they're 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 phenomenal and they're they're the perfect basis for what will become the Martin Scorsese we know and and love to see. 
And and obviously this was during like a this was during a heyday of filmmaking that went out of its way to get the gritty underbelly of society during the 1970s when arguably it was we were at one of our worst points economically since the depression. And I mean, just looking again, you know, I mean, like Last Temptation of Christ, it's so out of his wheelhouse, but it's also a visually striking and compelling movie from a very grounded retelling of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And then just looking at the early 2000s again, the Aviator, I actually still haven't seen all the way through. I, I feel like I need to. The only reason why I haven't is because. Um, there's certain aspects of Howard Hughes's life that are reminiscent of a certain relative of mine, and that's a little triggering, especially for my mom. And I have seen those scenes, and I'm I've been a little bit like, oh, oh. Um, uh, so, and and like and you know, Shutter Island was fine. So it's, I I I kind of look at it like this was such a weird window in his life that was covering again just the comings and goings of life in the late 90s and early 2000s and i mean i would even stretch that as far with gangs of new york despite the fact that it's supposed to be set in what the 1850s maybe start of the american civil war like there's enough there that you can draw a parallel with the conflicts and strife that we have going on in our country back in 2000 as well as now so it's i think i think a movie like this definitely fits it definitely fits that period it's just a matter of i think people expected more and felt like this movie was more of a hodgepodge that was all over the place when in my mind i i think there's something secretly there, there's something secretly perfect with this movie um i mean I'm, I'm already set to watch it again just because i'm it's it, i it's been a while since a movie has really hooked me the way this one did and again yeah. like nicholas cage I'll, I'll come out and say it He's one of my favorite actors of all time. My dad was almost in a Nicolas Cage movie. The the one that got his career going, I should note, Valley Girl. That was when my dad had the opportunity to be an extra at the, uh, the, the big high school party. And you can actually see one of my dad's fraternity brothers just straight, straight up on camera in the film, <laughs> you know, and uh, with Nick Cage, like somewhere in the in the shot. So I, I kind of look at this and I'm like, yeah, this is uh, if, you know, if I had to give my final words on this movie, it's it's testament of one of the best filmmakers of our time starring one of the best actors of our time. And it's a confluence that I don't feel like we get enough of anymore outside of, you know, you can make the same argument with the Irishman like it's it's De Niro and, and Scorsese in a film. Arguably, you can't go wrong. And in my mind. You know, even though the movie's like three hours long, it didn't do any wrong. In fact, it just elevated a film that I, I to this day I still can't believe Warner Brothers didn't take up the offer of The Irishman, and it went to Netflix. I, it's like it, it's Martin Scorsese. Trust him. Just trust him. Yeah. Anyway, that's a different. That's a different. Discussion. No, that, that I mean that, that's really all you need to sum up with the movie Martin Scorsese. Trust him because you know there was the movie was still beautiful to watch. You know, it was still. Not only just the the cast was top notch, you know, no, I, I, the performances were all really good, uh, but yeah, just like how beautiful it was, and um, and yeah, I think if anything, like the uh, the uncertainty of the tone, yeah, it's a little maybe distracting, but I also wouldn't call it a bad movie for that either. I mean, 
you know, we didn't even talk about the um, the drug dealer pinned on a fence who, as yeah. they're breaking him out, um, he's pointing to the Empire State Building and being like, oh, what a great country. And it just kind of plays some patriotic music and like fireworks as they're, and it's just like the funkiest thing. And you're just thinking like, what is this? What is the movie? Like, what are, what are we doing? But you're not saying what are we doing out of just disgust or contempt. You're, it's still, it's intriguing. And, mm. you know, for all my uncertainty around the closing of the movie, I just think that uh, the chaotic nature of the movie and Cage at his prime make it very worthwhile. And, you know, for for any criticism I've said of the maybe less than satisfactory ending, I just think that the movie does a lot still in the first hour and 50 minutes. It wasn't even too long. It might have been right in at two hours, but and it and it kind of goes by it doesn't drag uh, it flows but um i think the movie does enough to really kind of leave a lasting impression so um overall i i enjoyed it i was not expecting this out of uh, scorsese and cage you know and um yeah kind of a forgotten movie of the late 90s so it's it's funny we had our conversation about natural born killers and like i know that's a more famous movie but um yeah man it's just like these 90s movies that you know yeah the kids are gonna have posters of pulp fiction on their walls but no one's gonna have like a a poster of bringing out the dead on their wall or but it's just like yeah it's just like these movies of the 90s that really capture the time that um really went under the radar and still to this day so uh yeah solid movie uh good pick i i i think it's it's definitely worth the watch and uh Two very quick final things I'll, I'll point out before we wrap up here. Uh, well, actually, one of them, I'll just make it as, as a direct question. Would you say it's a good Halloween movie? I think so. But I'll, I'll let you kind of give your answer and explain before I say any further. I think so, just because, you know, it deals... If you're looking to have, like, I just need to see some blood and gore. I mean, Tom Sizemore sums it up. He's like, we like our coffee bloody when he's going crazy. Like... <laughs> That's the whole yeah. nature of the EMT business. If you if you're in it for you're just like Halloween to me means blood and gore. And yeah, I mean it's very real, so it's a little bit of a different take. Or if you think Halloween means to you like I need to explore life and death subjects, it's it's in the nature of the film. Or if you're just looking for something a little creepy and tense, uh, the movie has moments too, you know, following Noel into the dark, scary tunnel or all the scary crack houses they go into and um you know there's no tense strings no tense orchestra you know scary movie tropes but yeah like i think any element of a horror film that you're looking for or horror a halloween film not even just horror a halloween film it's in this movie so in a weird way it's very fitting it does have that perfect uh scorsese soundtrack uh, I will, I, we forgot to mention that, but it's rolling stones in the engine. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you pretty much, you pretty much said my piece on the matter. You know, it, it's, it, if, if you want a good sort of contemplation on life and death, this is the movie you watch to see it. And, and I guess my final words, cause you sort of said this earlier. And I, the reason why I was, I had to like cover my mouth cause I was chuckling, I guess the, the final words uh, don't belong to you. They don't belong to me. They belong to, I only have this because it was, it's like one of those little desk accoutrement that you get just randomly for the holidays. But the final words belong to this little guy right here. 
death is a natural part of life. You've been listening to Mars on Life. Look up our show on Instagram and Twitter by searching at Mars on Life Show and give us a follow. Tune in to the latest episodes and bonus content from our show wherever podcasts are found, including Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Also, don't forget to head on over to the official Mars on Life YouTube channel to like and subscribe our work. This show's artwork, Happy Mars, is by Zachary Urbrick, while our intro and outro is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. If you keep going, you'll make it to Mars. <laughs>